And welcome to Pints and Politics. Pints and Politics is a weekly discussion program of all things political, coming to you through the facilities of Trent Radio, CFFF in Peterborough, 92.7 on your FM dial. My name is Bill Templeman. In addition to this radio show, Pints and Politics is streamed live from the Trent Radio website. We also have a podcast at pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca. The podcast of tonight's show is usually uploaded by noon the following day. And every Thursday, a small crew of local pundits gathers at the Garnet Pub, Aylmer and Hunter, here in Peterborough at 5 p.m. For an informal gathering, we're at We Talk About All Things Political. All are welcome. Please join us. We post on Twitter, at Bill Temp, and on the Cooperate Peterborough Facebook page. Joining me tonight in the studio is our panel to talk about the importance of Peterborough's natural heritage sites and their status in the city's official plan review. We have Ian Atteridge, Ben Wolf, and Dylan Radcliffe. Welcome all. Thank you. And if uh, why don't we start with, with you, Ben, if you could uh, just explain your connections to the topic and a bit about yourself. Sure. So I like to think of myself sometimes as a serial co-creator of community initiatives dating all the way back to Peterborough Greenup back in the 1990s, and more recently, they include Peterborough Pollinators, which is grassroots up creation of pollinator habitat around the city, and Reimagine Peterborough, which is about uh, community-wide, deep conversation about the city we want to live in, and natural heritage certainly fits into all of that. It's part of why I live here, too. Wonderful. Ian. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. And my background, I guess, I've been in Peterborough about 22 years, and it's um, it's pretty amazing because of these natural areas and the linkages between them. And that's what really drew me to both Peterborough and the surrounding Kawartha region, the water, the lands, the plants, the animals, the spirit of this place. And I'm trained as a as an ecologist. I'm also trained as an environmental lawyer. And I'm very much involved with different groups around the province and beyond in how we might conserve some of these important places, both locally and at provincial, national, and international level. Thanks. And Dylan? Yeah, so just thanks for having me here today. Yeah, so I guess first and foremost, uh, one, my primary connection. A lot of people know me as the vice president of the B. Peterborough Field Naturalists. I'm also currently pursuing graduate studies at Trent University, uh, studying parks and open space management, particularly when it comes to partnerships between cities and municipalities and not-for-profit or ch- charitable partnerships uh, for managing those spaces. I also run a small environmental blog that uh, covers topics in Peterborough and, and region specifically related to environmental issues. Well, that's great. Well, thanks so much. Now, as almost every visitor will attest, uh, every newcomer to Peterborough, they usually comment on how blessed we are with the abundance of accessible natural heritage sites, the Autonomy River, Jackson Park, Millennium Park, the Parkway Trail, the Zoo, Del Crary Park, the Liftlock, Beavermead, the Trans-Canada Trail, the Rotary Trail, Harper Park, etc., and on and on. And some of the things we might consider is, how did this come to be? And for those of us who, who live here, we take this all for granted. Could the three of you set some context for me as to how did we get to this point of living compared to suburbs closer to the GTA with such an abundance of, of green space of heritage sites around and what does that mean for us well i can i can start with a, a little bit this is ben so first of all we're just a little bit outside the economic orbit of the gta which has to some degree left us alone to pursue our own path but also geographically we're sitting right on the boundary between the agricultural land of uh southern canada and the boreal forest and the canadian shield and we're we're, we're in boundary conditions and i think that's uh, a lot of what uh um, makes this place distinct in a lot of ways. We also have the river and, and a major waterway running right through the middle of the city, which is profoundly important to the character of the place. And it's a place with a lot of indigenous history, a gathering place uh, for a long, long time. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I just add to that. Like a lot of a lot of people don't necessarily realize this, but where we live here is probably 
Well, it is the most diverse region in Canada, uh, the mixing zone between the uh, St. Lawrence Lowlands and the Canadian Shield uh, creates for some creates some of the most biodiverse con- conditions uh, in Canada. And so uh, it's something we're all incredibly blessed with. And I think a lot of people think of the rainforests out west or uh, or the jungle as being the places where where nature is. But uh, no, it's right here in our backyard. We also yeah. have an incredible topography here. We're in the middle of a fairly well-renowned Peterborough drumlin field of about 5,000 of these small hills. And Peterborough has, I think, it's seven major ones that are shaping our community and defining the core where the rivers run, um, some of these glacial meltwaters that come down through Jackson Park and other places, that has shaped this landscape, and it's shaped the peoples here. And we've seen that this has been a meeting place for Indigenous peoples for uh, millennia, and uh, that would be the Anishinaabe people um, in this territory, but also the Algonquin folks who are just to the north and to the east, and uh, the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois to the south. So so it is a mixing place of people and of the natural environment. And really, people, of course, are part of that natural environment, the environment we live in. And we now have uh, many people from around the world as settlers on this territory. Okay. Now, in terms of our natural heritage sites, why should we? Why are these such a big deal to preserve? I mean, there are those people who say, well, parks are nice, but... You know, factories and shopping centers create more jobs, and you know we have uh, we have an abundance of green space. Why don't we develop a bit of it to improve the local economy? What are the values that are are behind uh, preserving all this green space? Is it is it natural heritage for itself? Is it aesthetic, environmental, recreational, health and wellness, historical? What's what's drive? What should drive this? Yeah, it's the right thing to do. But on a on, on a more serious and practical note, uh, I, I, the natural heritage of our, our city and uh, and region um, isn't necessarily evenly distributed. Uh, I'd like to mention uh, often there are people within our community who will throw out figures uh, that state the amount of uh, green space we have in our city. But the reality of the situation is that nearly all of that's concentrated in the north of the city on the Trent University property through Jackson Park and then in, in and then some down in Harper Park in the Meat Creek area. And so these these important natural features on our landscape provide us with all sorts of benefits, including um, f- flood retention, uh, mitigating against the urban heat island effect, which is which uh, which is simply is that uh, urban areas are warmer than their surrounding countryside due to the uh, concrete and asphalt that absorbs and radiates the heat, and it and it also and it. And it also helps uh, mitigate against uh, significant flood events like the one we had here in 2004. And that's just not not just the parks either. An individual tree has an enormous capacity to absorb water. And so if you have canopy cover above even residential areas, you uh, you have a you can mitigate stormwater in that way as well. Okay, so the official plan review process that is ongoing right now surely must touch on natural heritage. How how is that interface working out? Well, I want to start off on that one. I bet the others will have something to say too. But I want to start off on that one by saying that one of the key stages in the city's public engagement process for the official plan was to ask people what they value in the community. What are the values and principles at the core? And that is a big part of what they heard back. So uh, the engagement process, what are the top three things that people value about Peterborough? Well, two of them were natural beauty, close access to nature, uh, well-being in proximity to urban amenities, and that Peterborough is an environmentally conscious city. So when they went to write the vision statement for the plan, which is to guide us for the next 25 years, that language got a lot of priority based on a lot of public feedback. And the, the, the um, vision statement includes the words, a community distinctive in its natural beauty, heritage, and leadership in sustainability. So mm. um, that's uh, meant to be at the center 
of all of this. I, I want to throw in one more thing just because mm. I've got the microphone for the yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. Ha! Uh, which, which is that what is it we're trying to sustain here? Well, we're trying to sustain life. Um, and what we're talking about with natural heritage is the living systems that all life depends on. And we tend to treat them as an afterthought or as uh, just one layer on a map. And they're the basis of everything. Hmm. And I, I think that um, natural heritage or these natural areas and the connections between them that make up a system, a natural heritage system, are the – that's really the backbone of how we start our planning. We start from that vision as Ben described. And the vision of many people in Peterborough, and it's not just in the official plan process, but whether you're talking about um, the culture plan, the – Parks Plan, Vision 2025, other initiatives, that the valuing of the natural environment comes to the fore. And it's quite amazing. In this town, we have probably some of the the greatest collection of environmental expertise of anywhere in Canada. If one looks at the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry, the Autonomy Region Conservation Authority, Trent University, Fleming College, all kinds of environmental groups, whether it's the Kortha Land Trust, Peterborough Greenup, many others that are doing incredible things. We have such a wealth of understanding and connection to this natural environment. And that is important day to day for certainly recreation, but it's also for our physical health. We know that even for our mental health, as we go into natural areas, we feel more relaxed. We're able to connect with a softer landscape. We're able to make a deeper spiritual connection with other beings, and we know that that leads to less violence, to better relationships with other people. So there's many values that have been expressed by people mm-hmm. and that people connect to that natural environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it really needs to be the backbone from which we start to plan where there might be buildings or sports fields or other kinds of things in our city. Now, you, you mentioned uh, an or- a few organizations that may not be familiar to people. Um, what is the Kortha Land Trust? The Kortha Land Trust is a nonprofit charity that works with landowners to help protect important places around the Kortha region. So landowners often will come to the Land Trust and say, I've been looking after my property for decades. I want to make sure that after I'm gone or after I have to pass it on to my kids, it'll be looked after well. As, and so they may donate that or enter in, uh, into an agreement with the Kortha Land Trust. The, the Land Trust has been around for um, close to, I guess it's uh, 17 some odd years. And uh, it's been doing a lot of good work around our region. So that land, in effect, becomes parkland for the public to access? It's protected for its environmental values. Mm-hmm. It depends on the site. There's uh, okay. quite a network of trails on the north shore of Stony Lake that um, have really connected a number of private parcels and lands that are owned or maintained by the land trust. And that right. is enabling the cottage community and other visitors to come and really enjoy the outdoors and see a variety of the habitats that are there. Great. Dylan. You had uh, oh. coming in. <laughs> I, I was, I was just going to put some numbers to what Ian had to say a minute ago. Um, I, when he was talking about the value that uh, natural areas can bring to uh, uh, people's mental health, and so. Uh, Ontario's public health agency recently did a significant uh, study on natural areas and exposure to uh, the uh, natural environment uh, from citizens of Ontario. And one of the most uh, astounding things I found out about uh, through this study um, was that just having your home within sight of a tree has health outcomes that are equivalent to increasing one salary by $10,000 a year. And so just that alone is, uh, is, is such an incredible statistic. And it really goes to show the value of, uh, what natural systems can bring to our own lives as, as well. I think in our economic system as well, we've long recognized, I think developers recognize that being, um, close to a natural area or a trail adds considerable value to that property. And it's often those properties that are sold first 
um, in a development scheme. So they have a lot of value in an economic sense. I think that bird watching is seen as the uh, one of the second largest uh, activities, uh, recreational activities of people in the United States. That adds a lot of value. Mm. There's a tourism conference today about uh, connections with the Trent Severn Waterway and trails and other opportunities. The um, taste the Kawartha's concept. There's a lot of connections to land in this region, and it has economic value. It has health value. It has intrinsic value. But how does the the, the conflict maybe uh, between developers who need to who want to who earn their uh, their livelihoods by creating communities, building houses, selling houses that have to be situated on lands close to Peterborough or within Peterborough? How does that play off against? The preservation for all the three of you uh, have been referencing. In other words, how do those decisions get made? Do, well, I, do we I, leave the tree or do we put in a, a street? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, you're getting to the essence of some of the planning work and the science that goes along with it that needs to happen. But my quick answer to your question would be not well enough. Um, um, <laughs> that uh, that even the best systems that we have right now are in an early stage of evolution. They're very partial. They tend to have been cre- created as part of development process, not as part of environmental protection process. Uh, they tend to be constraints on development rather than looking at whole living systems to begin with and asking larger questions about of what they need. I've got an, a, a little a little bit here I want to throw in if I can. There's a gentleman by the name of Bill Reed. He's a consultant um, who he runs a company called Regenesis, and he's an architect, and he's called in on um, development projects. But he's called in as an environmental consultant with a view to whole environmental systems, and he asks this um, this beautiful question of um, um, if uh, if all of our sort of rules were followed right now, would that be sufficient to sustain life? Well, no, it actually, it, it, it wouldn't. Um, mm-hmm. um, um, and he asks them, what would be missing from that? And you can start listing off all sorts of, of things. There's not enough there about air quality or water quality or um, the degradation of food systems. And then he stops the process and he says, okay, so you're going to come up with a big list. Right. It's um, it's a big list. And that big list will will never get us there. There's a value shift that we need to make here, a different view of how these decisions get made in general that starts from respecting living systems. And rather than merely having lists of constraints on uh, what can be done in development. Mm, okay. So the projects that are, and I don't want to get, get us prematurely into the weeds and details of specific things going on around the city, but we have the Ashboro development in East City, which all these fairly large homes are going in. And, um, apparently there have been some allowances for some green space there. Then we have uh, what's going on up at Trent about the, uh, the development of the, um, the hockey pad up there and, the possible uh, destruction of a wetland. How do those decisions get made in light of these values you're describing? I think usually what tends to happen, and then I'll throw it over to these guys, um, is that the project gets planned first, and then the context gets looked at afterwards, and then it becomes about mitigation. Um, And that's um, a lot of harm is going to result in doing things that way. I, I think I think that's exactly right. Uh, really, when it, when it comes to these sorts of projects, it comes to mit- mitigation. And there's, you know, and when there's so much money riding on the table, like the Twin Paterina uh, was estimated to cost uh, twenty twenty three million dollars, and so. Uh, and so if the if the city feels like the money's there at the time they want to spend that money as quickly as possible and so all all things sorts of things go by the wayside when it comes to uh um uh, moving projects along uh <coughs> and same with uh developers interests um and so ben mentioned that there there are uh uh, th- that we're not doing uh, several uh, th- this list of things. We're not we're not necessarily doing even the things uh, even recommendations on that list. Uh, l- let alone uh, going going out and doing a, a whole uh, p- 
paradigm shift around how we do development and um even even at the moment uh thinking of several uh developments around our city there's several small changes that could have been made to these developments that uh would have would have made a a significant difference and uh and it, it's really disappointing to see, um, for instance, the conservation communities on the uh, west end of our city. Uh, there were some beautiful hedgerows that ran right along property lines, and they, it, before they built any homes on this on the on the on the subdivision, they bulldozed the whole thing, and it, it, they, they, there are no homes where those trees were, and so uh, and they would and those and those hedgerows would have been an excellent connection to places like Loggerhead Marsh or uh, to the cabin cabin marsh and that's just one small change uh for and that would have cost probably less money um than if the developer just cleared the site in in its entirety i think we're seeing that development uh particularly on the periphery of the city and what we call the greenfields area um those areas are where there are quite extensive tracts of land that are uh, purchased over time and larger developers will then put in a whole subdivision. Whereas in other parts of the city, in the more built-up area, that's where there are many opportunities, as the recent design charrette hosted by the city in June demonstrated that there are lots of places where more intense development not huge scale, not not huge high rises, but uh, three, four, maybe storied buildings with commercial on the ground floor, um, multiple scales that can work in the more built up area. And so it comes back to looking at the framework of our landscape. Where are those hedgerows? Where are those drumlands? Where are those wetlands? And fitting human activities, including development, around that with that context rather than starting with that human perspective and then mitigating and pushing as far as we can into those already compromised natural systems in our city. Now, Ian, it was interesting you mentioned uh, drumlins uh, because I was uh, sort of took in a few of the sessions on the Lily Lake development, and apparently there was quite a substantial hill of glacial till, I don't know if it qualifies as a drumlin, in the center of it, that is now gone, that's been flattened out, or is planned to be flattened out. How could um, the process work so that those features, instead of being initially taken out and starting from a level construction field, be integrated in, to, say, to do just what you were describing? Well, for starters... Humans have been building homes on hills and mountainsides for uh, as, as long as we've been around. It's it's not new technology. Uh, the reality is that it would cost marginally more for a developer to uh, to update the designs of their homes to be built into the sides of these hills and these 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 aren't enormous hills to begin with so uh it's it's not outside the realm of possibility uh it and, it, and it's unfortunate because the diverse kind of slope angles and uh and uh exposures to sunlight can create some unique habitat conditions which is Part of the reason why uh, we live in such a diverse area, as uh, Ian alluded to earlier, um, if you wanted to, if you really wanted to um, uh, use a, some planning mechanisms for uh, for the development uh, of these uh, real estate developments, uh, the city has those at their at their disposal, um, and it it can create and really what that where that comes into play is at the site plan level when the city is uh when the city is negotiating with the developer on how the site will actually be developed uh we can place constraints on the ability of a developer to remove an entire hilltop uh it's it's something that cities do all the time and it seems to be something that for the last several years peterborough has been reluctant to exercise when it comes to environmental issues um <clears throat> Yeah. Finn. I think that leads into a question of what shifts might be possible or that citizens might want to encourage now that we have a new administration at City Hall. But one that's been on my mind for years is just the lack of capacity on natural heritage at the city and also the way that the administrative structure at the city has 
put that under parks and under public works. And we've had actually some incredible people doing some amazing work on natural heritage who've been just stymied by the fact that those values might not be, those values and priorities might not have been there in the administrative structure over their heads. There's a woman named Kathy Duick, who was the original creator of the Ecology Park and who did some really beautiful work in Millennium Park over the last couple of years, uh, more than that, in, in uh, naturalizing plantings and creating pollinator habitat rather than gardens that are just pretty. Um, and the way that the city's structure was set up, the only position that she could have in the winter was driving a snowplow. And uh, um, it's just an example of the sort of the, 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 there could be a lot more vision about what matters. Um, and I, I, I hope we might see some of that shift. I think we heard some of that last night. Uh, last night was the inauguration of the new city council. And uh, we heard it in a number of ways. Um, Chief Lori Carr of Hiawatha First Nation was there uh, welcoming people to the uh, the territory of the Mishisagi, uh Anishinaabe people. And she spoke of the the treaty relationship that uh, is in place between settlers and the indigenous people of this this territory. She also spoke, and she really it was almost like a, a plea for the new council to take into account their the the impacts of their decisions on the lands and the waters. And I think that's a new perspective that we don't we don't always see. We have had a a natural areas advisory committee in the past. Last night. Uh, Mayor Diane Terrian spoke about establishing an environmental advisory committee, reestablishing that, mm-hmm. bringing those values more to the fore, and not just environmental advisory committee, but other committees where there are going to be many more people from the community bringing their expertise, their experience, their love of this town to the table to help make those decisions along with council and the staff. Tell yeah, I, I just wanted to mention, I, with the previous administration, I, I think uh, because a lot of these issues got uh, sent to the back of the queue, uh, it ended up biting biting uh, city council and uh, um, and the senior city staff in, in the butt a little bit. Uh, we can see several projects around the city that, due to either uh, opposition by citizen groups or by uh, local First Nations that they they um, <laughs> that the projects were unable to move forward after an enormous amount of funding was uh, was put in place for their completion. Uh, right now, the city has an active injunction filed against it uh, by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and uh, and that's just as a result of poor environmental planning or not planning at all. I think we've also seen uh, lots of examples. People in this town care about their natural areas, and we've seen them go to the wall uh, for wetlands, Um, whether it's Loggerhead Marsh, whether it's Harper uh, Park and Creek, whether it's Downers Corners wetlands, other wetlands that... The parkway, even. uh, The parkway, yes, where people have stepped forward and have filed appeals and have gone to planning tribunals that used to be called the OMB, the Ontario Municipal Board, and they've gone and brought their expertise, their case, and have really influenced that decision. But as Dylan says, it has set back the progress of those subdivisions and other projects by years. And so there's a way, as Ben was initially talking about, there's a way of changing a mindset, reflecting those values, using the full suite of planning tools so that we can find um, a way that humans can live in this place, but to respect and value and protect those natural areas. There are tools. Ben, you are on the verge of an insight. Oh, let's see if I can come up with a come up with one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I wanted to talk about for a minute about just how much citizens can do and have done to um, to lead the way on some of these issues, um, and even to engage the system in ways that it ought to be working and hasn't. So um, um, two stories, and I, I'm actually I'm really excited Dylan is here because I'm hoping he'll say more about one of these stories. But I'll start with the Parkway, which is that the 
um, the community, the citizen response to the idea of putting four lanes of traffic through the middle of Jackson Park was described by the city itself, by the clerk's office, as the most um, overwhelming outpouring of citizen opinion on any issue in memory. Um, there were 6,000 people who signed a petition against that project, of whom over 1,600 wrote personal comments to council on why it mattered to them that that not happen to Jackson Park. Um, and that came from people of all ages, from small children to people who've lived here for generations to people who've moved to Peterborough because they value our natural heritage. So people want different questions asked and different priorities set. And the other one I wanted to mention and then um, pass the baton over to Dylan is um, why is it that Harper Creek is now protected um, or has been designated as a provincially significant wetland. The official processes to do that work, to decide uh, how significant it was, didn't find enough points on the point system for that to happen. And it is citizens, including Dylan and and Kim Zippel, who was uh, just uh, sworn in as a member of our new council last night, who went out in person um, with uh, lots of scientific skills and with science uh, support and found what the official agencies and processes had not that resulted in that designation and some proper protection. Wonderful. Yeah. Cool. So for, for those of you not familiar, um, in, in terms of the um, uh, types of protection that you can afford wetlands in the province, the highest level of protection is a provincially significant wetland. Um, the provincial policy statement states that no development shall occur within uh, a provincially significant wetland, which is about the strongest language that you can give uh, in terms of uh, protection. Um, so what ended up happening with the Harper Creek wetland, um, I, I can't claim to have done much of the groundwork. I kind of came on as the publicist at the end. Uh, so uh, I, I'm not going to take the credit, really. The, uh, the um, Most of the legwork and the heavy lifting went in by uh, Lynn Smith and Kim Zippel, um, who is uh, amazingly now on council. It's super exciting to see her there. So, uh, Dylan, can yeah. you just tell us where Harper Park is? I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. I know the 115. I know where the new casino is. Uh, right. Where's Harper Park? Yeah, so Harper Park, it's, it's a... It's a, it's it's a little hidden. There's actually no sign or trail entrance or parking for Harper Park. Um, it's a significant green space in the south end of the city. Uh, it, it it's about uh, I think it's 180 acres just south of um, uh, John F. Ross. Uh, the school there um, and north of the casino um, kind of tucked in behind Value Village and uh, it's it's pretty big and uh, if you look on a map of the city or a satellite image of the city you'll see this big kind of green space just north of uh, where the 115 meets the parkway so um, yeah so to get to where we were originally going with this is um, in terms of the protection uh, that was given to the Harper Creek wetland. Um, what Lynn and uh, Kim did was they went out uh, and they uh, in, and they went through the process of designating a provincially significant wetland line by line. There are hundreds of lines within uh, within the system to designate a PSW. Each line gives a certain number of points, and in order for a wetland to be deemed provincially significant, I believe it requires seven hundred and fifty points. Uh, um, and so, um, after all their heavy lifting and hard work, uh, uh, what in Harper Creek wetland was designated as a provincially significant wetland. It received a desktop upgrade from the Ministry of Natural Resources after Lynn and Kim submitted. Uh, submitted all of their findings to the MNR. Um, it's, this is, it's, it's an enormous amount of work and an enormous undertaking. Um, and, but it turns out it was well worth it. It's provided all sorts of extra protection to the wetland that wasn't there before and has given, uh, community groups a real light to stand on when it comes to development pressures in the area and measure and looking at the cumulative impact of all sorts of, uh, different projects that are going on in the, in the watershed. 
We also saw this uh, same kind of exercise happening at Loggerhead Marsh, where local residents and scientists from Trent University and elsewhere came together to bring their expertise to understand the systems there, the important values of water, of how it fits in the landscape, how it's protecting from flooding, how it's used by people, the important species that are found there. So that that kind of knowledge is available in this town. We also saw where folks from the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters came together with local residents to bring their expertise in the Downers Corners wetland um, hearing many years ago. And it's it's incredible how that citizen science, that knowledge of local citizens, their their knowledge of their neighborhood can really be brought together. We're seeing this with the uh, Peterborough Field Naturalists gathering all kinds of data as uh, the bird watchers are running around or the uh, pollinators are finding all kinds of interesting butterflies and moths and other pollinators, bees, etc., that are, are really bringing a fuller sense of the magnificent diversity of, of life that we have here in Peterborough. So how do we deal with a, let's say, a potential conversation, maybe we should do this at one point, have three developers join us and and hear them say, well, look, we need to create growth for the city. We need to provide new residents, uh, new new buildings for a population that wants to live here. We need to create jobs for people. Where is the trade-off? Like how, where is, where is room for them in this larger ecosystem? Yeah, so those are not incompatible goals at all. And um, I'm going to say that in two ways. So one way is that, for example, one of the big highlights that came out of the city design charrette for the official plan, a sort of a shared consensus overview from four days of intensive work by staff, citizens, um, was a shared wish to bring Jackson Creek back to the surface as it runs through the downtown area as a finger of green through the city. And one of the ways that it was agreed that that could work is through intensification that would allow building of some building of some not massively higher, but higher buildings in the area um, near where a major transit hub would be at the old train station and um, through parts of the, um, the downtown and around little Lake. And, I think that leads me to the second point, which is that I think the key to this, which becomes a win-win, is to have clear rules that everyone understands, Mm -hmm. which allow streamlined process that protects what's most important to protect. Wonderful. Oh, thank you for that explanation, because often what is thrown against the the advocacy the three of you are presenting is, well, you sound like the tribe of no. You want no growth. You want no building. And that'll kill the community. I mean, speaking with a business, a business cap on and what you're what you're describing would work well. Yeah, and we're also seeing, as I mentioned earlier, the economic value of green space and the functions. If we don't have to put in massive sewers and have people supervise them, if we have, if we retain our wetlands or create swales or other ways of letting the water filter back into the ground to support our springs and our water table, those kinds of things are sometimes called green infrastructure. If we are designing with nature, then we're saving money and we're we're uh, retaining those functions with a much lower cost. That is saving every taxpayer, every developer in the city a whole bunch of money. And we're also creating a more attractive city that is going to draw people to this area. Right. Dylan. Yeah, and, and just uh, simply, I, I'm sure all of these developers uh, who are currently tied up in court at the moment due to citizen opposition would appreciate not being in this position right in the position they're in right now. Uh, and so uh, working in collaboration with the local community uh, uh, can lead to economic benefits in that way as well. <laughs> we certainly have seen over the last couple of decades where Provincial guidelines or policies, uh, the provincial policy statement, as Dylan mentioned, it's providing guidance as how do, how do we do good planning in mm. our communities. And it has a whole bunch of stuff about development, a whole bunch about health and infrastructure, but also about natural areas, food and agriculture, water, natural hazards, various other pieces that all need to be part of our community, transportation. And so it brings this together, and we are, we are seeing how each community can then take 
this guidance and apply it to its own landscape and to its own values. And what we're seeing now as the city is preparing um, a framework with some consultants to, to look at natural heritage and how to create a natural heritage system of different kinds of, imp- of, of natural areas that come together, they get linked, those become really important to, to look at that framework. And right now, the city is consulting uh, the public on this with an open house. Uh, there was one uh, uh, on Monday night, and there will be another one on December 5th at uh, Northminster uh, United Church. And that will be looking at how do we design our buildings and we can do that in many ways that are environmentally and ecologically sound, but also where should we be protecting our natural areas and to what extent? Ben, you're right. Yeah, I just was going to mention that um, um, Ian and I were uh, just recently at a provincial consultation on the growth plan for the Greater Golden Horseshoe with the new government in power and looking at how that plan needs to be refined. And one of the one of the takeaways from that that was a little bit reassuring was a reminder that the term smart growth is a very nonpartisan term that it's 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 been um that term was put into use actually under the Harris government of all things and it's it's uh, it's carried over under governments of of all political parties that kind of work these are it, it's the word smart is there for a reason um this is growth that creates the communities people want to live in and um and that costs less and i've got one more bit too which is just that there was some tremendously good um citizen work done in the um in the summer uh where um, citizens moving ahead of official process convened a gathering of about 50 people that included um, um, uh, policy experts of various kinds, in, environmentalists, naturalists, um, academics, and First Nations, and came up with a document that was submitted to the city that's got some statements of ecological principles in it. And they include, for me, what are some of the core basics of what needs to be protected in pretty nice, um, tight language. Um, uh, humans depend on nature. Um, that we need to act on and value First Nations knowledge and consultations, prioritize natural heritage and planning. It could go on for, for quite a bit, but there are some specifics in there that I think it's easy to agree on. And they include that we need to conserve large areas, minimize fragmentation of systems, maintain wildlife connectivity, establish proper ecological buffers around these areas and protect natural values. And there's also a statement offered to the city as language for the plan by a a pretty powerful group of uh, citizen minds that this requires an ecosystem perspective in land use planning founded in science, reliant on scientific data and emphasizing proactive management rather than reactive restoration and mitigation. Interesting. Now, what is, is there any, there's so many footnotes I want to take take you up on here, but is there any possibility of restoration of brownfield lands and former industrial properties that can, in fact, add to our total, within the built-up area, our our, our total, well, uh, natural, natural heritage, square footage, if you will, or... Um... Yes, so I'd, I'd say there's definitely a couple that come to mind. Um, uh, w- one such is the current composting facility that is right within the center of Harper Park. Uh, there are several composting hedgerows and uh, that and heavy machinery moving in and out of there every day, um, with uh, sediment loading into Harper Creek, which is uh, giving the brook trout a bit of a hard time in in spawning, uh, which is rather unfortunate. But uh, so that would be a uh, high priority in, in my mind. Um, now, the problem, not necessarily the problem, but uh, the problem with the brownfield sites in particular is that if you're turning them into natural heritage areas that have recreational value, um, you do have to um, protect humans against potential contaminants on those sites. And we know there are several uh, brownfield sites within the city that have PCBs and other extremely harmful pollutants that uh, that uh, can have serious negative health implications on on uh, on on citizens if they if they visit those sites. So um, we have to be careful when it comes to uh, jumping to kind of uh, ideas around potential restoration sites uh, around the city. Yeah. 
I think that those are ideal sites for looking at redevelopment. Um, there's all kinds of provincial guidance. There's, there's uh, provincial laws that enable that to happen and some incentives, both at the local and the provincial level, to encourage that to happen. That may be a place for a new business. Um, I think we are looking – there has been discussion about expanding Peterborough's boundaries to take in new areas for industrial development and larger complexes. Well, actually, we have some of those brownfields areas within the city limits where the infrastructure – the, the pipes, the um, the police and fire services, all of those things are much cheaper to service. It's going to mm. do us um, well on an economic front to redevelop those sites. And there may be, um, as Dylan says, opportunities for cleaning up those those sites in a way that there might be some housing development. There could be some parks to round out or to connect some of those those core areas, such as uh, around Harper Park. Great. Now, uh, what metrics can be used to assign a value for natural heritage sites and new developments? Now, we know, well, Lily Lake is underway, so it's no longer a new development. But development in the future, perhaps is a better way to phrase it. We know that planners have included parkland and green space in Lily Lake, for example. How can the official plan ensure that future developments uh, have a sufficient quantity or an integrated quantity of natural heritage sites within their plans? The official plan, our current official plan, that is about 38 years old now, um, and it, it's been changed over time, but not a whole comprehensive review. So that's the review that's going on right now, and the city is expecting to finish that up in six to nine months, perhaps. So there's, uh, there's I think, three ways that natural areas or natural places are protected in the official plan right now. One is to be designated as open space, so it can only be for, um, it could be for playing fields, it could be for natural uses. Um, there's also a natural areas overlay that provides an additional layer of protection and identifies those important natural places. And then there are parks. We have park policies and targets for recreation and open space in our neighborhoods. And currently there's a study being done by consultants, some really good consultants locally who are bringing their knowledge of the city and of recreational needs, natural needs, to assess how much parkland do we have in the city and are we meeting uh, some of the the typical targets, uh, including the one in our official plan. I think uh, the initial study that was completed in Vision 2025 two years ago was suggesting that we're really actually falling short. So we're going to need to expand our park areas and use or convert some of those areas in order to round out the picture for all the residents of Peterborough. Right. So on the official plan, uh, we're winding down here, uh, how can citizens get involved in this? In other words, how can the official plan review best reflect the appropriate appropriate high value that current citizens place in natural heritage? I mean, Ben, you started off the program with citing the findings of, uh, of the, the work that the city's done so far. Now, how can this high, high value remain constant over coming decades? Well, uh, that's a big question, but an, an immediate an immediate step is that the city's at the stage right now of looking for feedback on the work they've done so far. Um, they're presenting the um, the values and principles and asking, is this what you said? Is this what you want us to work from? Because they're moving into the stage of writing policies. So there are some official processes and events are getting involved in that. And, and um, Ian's your man for giving a better answer to that part of the question. Um, um, hold the newly elected council to the values that you want to see for your city. Um, use your opportunities to uh, uh, to present your, your feelings on this. And remember that our protective systems aren't that great. One thing I was going to say earlier when we were talking about the rules and policies that do exist, another quote from this guy, Bill Reed, is that what we do now is just one step above breaking the law. You know, if, if if we did it just slightly worse, we'd go to jail. Um, and right. that that tends to be the standard that gets applied to this um, this kind of work. And is that really what we want? Is that really what we value? I hope not. Right. 
Yeah. I think that there's, as Ben said, uh, talk to the to your new councillors. Um, some of those folks have been on council for a number of years, have experience. Others are, are new and wanting to engage with their community. All of the councillors were really speaking about how they would represent the community. They can only do that if people are engaging with them. Having those conversations... The official plan is having a number of open houses. I mentioned the one on uh, Wednesday, December 5th at Northminster United Church. That's a key one to look at the map, look at some of the framework, some of the main directions, get a bit of a presentation. There will be um, the background from that that will be posted online, and people can make comments up until uh, December 21st, I understand. But there will be other workshops uh, coming forward, and as the city staff are working on this, you can send a note to uh, Planet Peterborough uh, anytime. Um, add your comments and engage with your neighbors. Um, be part of citizen science. And there's also other consultations. I mentioned the park study that's going on. There will be an environmental advisory committee that uh, council will consider. Some other applications, actually, uh, for different committees at the city that are open until December 14th. Um, people were invited by the mayor last night at the inauguration to get involved in shaping the city and creating together the kind of city that we want to live in. Well, that's great. Now, we have about three minutes left, so maybe we could move into a place where we can sort of bundle this up and uh, the impression we want to leave our listeners with as to what they can do. Uh, yeah, I just I just wanted to send, expand on one thing that Ian said was uh, about uh, citizen science, and there's all sorts of opportunities to participate that in that in our local community. There are several projects on iNaturalists. You can get the app on your phone and uh, submit your sightings there. There's also eBird, um, which is another great citizen science program, or the Christmas Bird Count that's upcoming and run by the Peterborough Field Naturalists. Um, it was, and so uh, those are some great opportunities uh, for everybody to get involved. And Harper Park was protected mostly because of citizen science. So, yeah, and uh, as for all the people over the last uh, eight or so years who spent the time in the trenches just uh, working to protect the places we love, like uh, we've now that we've got a council willing to work with you, it's uh, it's time to get to work. So it's exciting. Thank you, Kim Zippel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to throw in something that we haven't talked about much yet, which is to get out there and enjoy the beauty of the surroundings. Um, um, you know, one of the best ways to clear your head and figure out what it is you actually want to do next is to go for a walk and uh, um, um, to take your camera and uh, take your take your app if you want to do some identification. But uh, there's so much beauty here, and it, it's a great way to reconnect with yourself and life. Right. Yeah. And I think of the call that uh, Chief Laurie Carr provided last night to council and really all the citizens of Peterborough is to, in our decisions, let's think of the lands and the waters and how we make those decisions, whether it's in our daily lives, whether it's in our collective lives, in our work or our play, our, our clubs, um, or through our political representatives. We have this treaty relationship and we have a relationship with the land. We always will. Whether we recognize it or not, we need to respect it and really protect it. Now, Ben, as we wind down, you, you have something you'd like to read. Please. I do. Yeah, I brought a poem as, as a possible closing for this, and it's ironically titled School Prayer because it's anything but by Diane Ackerman. In the name of the daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, as an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors, and the day that embraces it, and the cloud veils drawn over it, and the uttermost night, and the male and the female, and the plants bursting with seed, and the crowning seasons of the firefly and the apple, I will honor all life wherever and in whatever form it may dwell, on earth my home and in the mansions of the stars. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. So, uh, Ben Wolf, Ian Atteridge, uh, Dylan Radliff, Radliff, thank you for coming in, and thank you for uh, for all your insights. Uh, just as we sign off here, our schedule for next week, on December 4th, we will be reconvening our uh, politics panel. Last time this year, Sylvia Sutherland, Lauren Hunter, Tim Etherington, and Donald Fraser for a wrap-up of the year in review uh, on our last program of 2018. Uh, as you know, uh, as you may know, Trent Radio uh, closes down, uh, I think, December 6th. 7th, and we start up again in uh, January. So please join us again next Tuesday at 9 on Trent Radio 92.7. Uh, our day and time slot may change the new year. We'll post this on the podcast uh, website as soon as we know. And if you miss us on the radio, you can always download the show the next day at pintsandpolitics.p2bopodcasters.ca. Until next week, this is Bill Templeman.